Welcome back, everyone. Hope you had a good weekend. I know I did. I spent a lot of time sleeping and also just finishing this episode. Anyway, let's get right to it. This week, we have Lay Newman on the show. Lay Newman's memoir about Alaska still points north was a finalist for the National Book Critics Circle John Leonard Prize. Her short stories have appeared in the Paris Review, Harper's One Story, Tin House, and McSweeney's. She's the winner of the Paris Review's 2020 Terry Southern Prize for Humor and Wit, and her story, Hal Palace, was selected for 2020 Best American Short Stories, as well as won the 2020 Pushcart Prize and the Paris Review's ASME Winning Award for Fiction. She will be reading an excerpt of her short story, Hal Palace, accompanied by an original Storybound remix. Hi, I'm Lee Newman, and you're listening to Storybound. I'll be reading a story from my upcoming collection, Nobody Gets Out of Live, which comes out in April of 2022 from Scribner. And the story is called How Palace. It takes place in Alaska, like almost all my stories. Welcome to Storybound, presented by Lit Hub Radio and the Pod Agglomerate. I'm your host, Jude Brewer. You are now traveling to rural Alaska. Here we will find Mrs. Dutch living on a lake in her home that she calls Howell Palace. And she's preparing to sell it. This September, I finally put Hal Palace up for sale. Years of poor financial planning had led to this decision, and I tried to take some comfort in my agent's belief in an all-cash offer. Silver, my agent, is a highly organized, sensible woman who grew up in Alaska. I checked, but when she advertised the listing, she failed to mention her description on the internet. Attractively priced teardown, with plain dock and amazing lake views, she wrote under the photo, investment potential. I'm still puzzled as to why the word teardown upset me. Anybody who buys a house on Diamond Lake brings in a backhoe and raises the place to rubble. The mud along the shoreline wrecks havoc with foundations, and the original homes like mine were built in the 1960s before the pipeline, back when licensed contractors had no reason to move to Anchorage. If you wanted a house, you either built it yourself or you hung out in the parking lot of Spinard Builder Supply, handing out six packs to every guy with a table saw in the back of his vehicle until one got broke enough or bored enough to consider your blueprints. Which is why the walls at Howe Palace meet the ceiling at such unconventional angles. Our guy liked to eyeball instead of using a level. To the families on the lake, my home is a bit of an institution. And it's not just because of the wolf room, which Silver suggested we leave off the list of the amenities, as most people wouldn't understand what we meant. About the snow machine sled and clamshell grotto, I was less flexible. Nobody likes a yard strewn with snow machines and three-wheelers, one or two of which will always be busted and covered in blue tarp. Ours is just not that kind of neighborhood. 
The clamshell grotto, on the other hand, might fail to fulfill your basic home-owning needs, but it is a showstopper. My fourth husband, Lon, built it for me in the basement as a surprise for my 53rd birthday. He had a romantic nature when he hadn't had too much to drink. Embedded in the coral and shells are more than a few freshwater pearls that a future homeowner might consider tempting enough to jackhammer out of the cement. Silver brought me a box of Girl Scout cookies to discuss these matters, and so I tried my hardest to trust the rest of her advice. When she said not to bother with pulling out the chickweed or flattening the rusted remnants of the dog runs, I left both as is. But then I started thinking about what people say about making blueberry muffins and burning vanilla candles. Buyers needed to feel the hominess. Fred Meyer had some plug-in tropical air fresheners on sale. I bought a few. I shoved them into the outlets. Within minutes, the entire downstairs smelled like a burning car wreck in Hawaii. Silver scheduled the open house for the second Saturday in September. Noon, she said before families have to put the kids down for a nap. The night before, I lay back in my recliner and thought how every good thing that had ever happened to me had happened in Hell Palace. And every bad thing, too. 43 years, five husbands, two float planes, a lifetime. It felt as if I should honor my home, that strangers shouldn't come around poking through the kitchen or kicking the baseboards, seeing only the mold in the hot tub and the gnaw marks on the cabinets from all the dogs I had had over the years, maybe even laughing at the name. Pal Palace was coined by Jamie Donovan, Danny Bob Donovan's little daughter, during a New Year's Eve party in 1977. She said it with awe, standing in the middle of the wolf room with a half-eaten candy cane. Mrs. Dutch, she said, this is so beautiful. I think I need to howl a little. And howl she did, cupping her hands around her mouth and letting loose a wild, lonely cry that endeared her to me for forever. Howl Palace was still beautiful in my mind and could be to other people, given the right welcome. Silver had said just to relax, to let her finesse the details, but buyers needed to experience how the house would feel if they lived in it. Friends coming over, kids in the backyard pitching mud chunks at mallards, a little music going. I went to the locker freezer and pulled out 50 pounds of caribou burger, plus four dozen moose hot dogs. All we needed now were a few side dishes and some buns. The next morning was bust a hump. The menu for the cookout had expanded to include green bean casserole, macaroni salad, guacamole, and trout almondine. Trout almondine requires cream for the cream sauce, which I forgot on my 8.30 run to Costco, leading me to substitute powdered milk mixed with a few cans of cream of mushroom soup. My fifth husband, Skip, used to call me the John Wayne of the home range, not in the nicest way, until he got dementia and forgot who I was, or that he had to follow me around explaining how I'd organized the produce drawer wrong, or let too much hair fall out of my head in the shower, or failed to remove every single bone from his halibut state because I didn't ever fucking think. 
Shipping him off to a facility in Washington near his daughter wasn't exactly something I struggled with. The pool table where I planned to lay out the buffet was coated with so much dust, it looked as though the velvet had sprouted a fine silver fungus. I dragged an old quarter sheet of plywood from the snow machine shed and heaved it up on top. If you were looking for a reason to split five cords of wood by hand each year for 40-odd years, consider my biceps at age 67. The air had the bright, whistly feel coming cold. Even as the grass on the back lawn lay in drunken clumps, fattened by 20-hour days of summer sunlight. Out in the garage, I found a flowery top sheet from a long-gone waterbed. That went over the pool table, soon to be followed by the side dishes, the salads, the condiments. On went the grill, the meat at the ready on the little side table that folds up with an indentation to rest your tongs and spatula. All that was left was the guacamole, which was when Carl's pickup pulled into the driveway. Carl wasn't my husband. Carl was the beautiful, bedeviling heartbreak of my life. His hair had thinned, but not so you saw his scalp and age spots mottled his arms. His smell was the same as ever. WD-40, line-dried shirt, the peppermint soap he used to cut through fish slime. For one heady second, I believed he had come back to say in some soft, regretful voice, remember when we ran into each other at Sportsman's Warehouse? It got me thinking, well, maybe we should give it another try. As Carl told me long ago, inside you hides the soft, secret pink balloon of dreams. He wasn't incorrect, but the balloon had withered a little over the years, and it was not a reassuring sign that Carl had a dog in the back of his vehicle. I thought you might need a new lab, he said. She's pedigree, real obedient. I had some idea of what he meant. She jumped ducks before he got off a shot and went after half-dead birds and the rabbits, despite the rocks he threw at her backside, trying to save her from injury. Once, she had eaten a healthy portion of his dishwasher. Over my years at Howl Palace, I'd had a lot of dogs, all of them black labs with papers proving their champion field and trial bloodlines. I loved every one of them and loved hunting with them. But no matter how you deal with these animals at home, stick or carrot, they just can't deviate from the agenda panting through their minds, an agenda born of instinct and inbreeding, neither of which suggests that they sit there wagging their tails when a bumblebee flies through a yard or a bottle rocket zooms by. I have seen my share of classic family retrievers on this lake, black or yellow labs, dumb, drooling goldens, the occasional hefty Chessie, who live only to snuggle up with the kids at picnics and ignore the smoked salmon you were about to insert in your mouth. But I've never had one in my kennel or in my house. My last dog, Babs, was a hunt nut, willful, with a hole in her emotional reasoning or somebody had yanked out her uterus without a fully approved vet license. I picked her up for free from an ad in the Penny Saver. Maybe that had something to do with it. She drowned after jumping out of a charter boat to retrieve a halibut that I had on the line, unaware of the tide about to suck her into the Gulf of Alaska. 
Still, I enjoyed her company more than Skip and Lon's combined. Bab slept not just in my bed, but under the covers, where we struggled over the one soft pillow. When she died, I was ready to retire from a lifetime of animal management. I was 63 years old and single, and I vowed to myself, no more labs, no more husbands, no more ex-husbands either. The kennel in the bed of Carl's truck only confirmed the wisdom of my decision. The whole thing lay flipped over on its side, jumping and heaving from the campaign being waged against the door. Nut hatches flickered through the yellowing trees, made frantic by the sound of claws against metal. Squirrels fed for other yards. Carl, I said, I'm about to have an open house. I can't take your dog. He looked over at the woodpile where the remains of the chain link runs sagged along the ground. You could put her in the basement, in the clamshell grotto, he said, then laughed. <laughs> he had a wonderful laugh, the kind that tickled through you slowly, inch by inch, brain cell by brain cell, until you were mentally unfit to resist him. No, Carl, I said, not even talking about the animal. She can drink out of the fountain. No, I said, and oh. I'm not a dog, he said, his voice quiet. Wind riffled through the aspens, exposing the silver underside of the leaves. Carl jammed his hands in his pockets. Besides, he said, you can't sell Hal Palace. I looked at him, daring him to tell me that he and I needed to live here together the way I had always wanted. He had a suitcase in the back of his cab. Carl looked at me as if about to say all this. Then he said, it's your home, Dutch. You love it. He smiled the way he always smiled. Time drained away for a few moments and we were back in the trophy room at Danny Boy's, 35 and tipsy, his fingers laced to the loop of my jeans. The eagle skipped on the turntable and my second husband, Wallace, ceased to exist. Tiny dry snowflakes clung to the edges of the window like miniature paper stars. Carl kissed me and a dark glittery hole opened up and I fell through all the way to the bottom. I hate you, Carl, I said, but as so often happens around him, it came out sounding backwards, fraught with tenderness. The kennel creaked all of a sudden. We both looked over and blam, the door snapped off. 70 pounds of black thundering muscle shot out of the truck and into the alders. Oh boy, he said, not good. Hand me the zapper, I said. She doesn't have a shock collar. I tried a two finger whistle, nothing, not a snap twig. I hate to say it, he said, but there's this appointment Carl, I've got an open house. It's a flight, he said, to Texas. I'm fishing down in Galveston for a few weeks. All the dewy romance inside me turned to gravel as I watched him move towards his vehicle. When he bent down to pick up the door to the kennel, his shirt twisted. It was a fly fishing shirt with a mesh panel for hot Texas days 
through which I caught a glimpse of a pager-looking box strapped to his side. It was beige. A green battery light blinked on top. Everybody our age knew what that box was. Carl was not here in my driveway to romance me all over again or even piss me off. Carl needed someone to dog sit while he went off to get fancy last-ditch chemo down in the lower 48. Houston, probably. I took a minute to organize my face. Get your animal, I said. Get her back in the goddamn kennel and take her with you. Or what, he said. You'll hang her on a wolf peg? The cheapness of his comet released us both. I turned and went inside not to watch his truck peel down the driveway. Carl and I had always disagreed about the wolf room, which was the only thing that he, Lon, Skip, and my third husband, R.T., might have ever had in common. Not unliked it, and I respected that, but it didn't mean I had to rip it out. I was proud of it. It was beautiful. It was mine. The music you're hearing in this episode was sampled from music by Martin Goffin and Candelion. And now for a quick commercial break. You are listening to Storybound with Leigh Newman. And now we return from our break. Back in the kitchen, 45 avocados sat on the counter waiting. People wail about the chain stores ruining the views in Anchorage. But if you lived through any part of the 20th century up here, when avocados arrived off the barge, hard as the pit at their center, you relish each trip to the vast cinder block box of dreams known as Costco. Every avocado I scooped out was packed with meat. Out it popped, one after another, like a creamy green baby butt headed to the bottom of the salad bowl. Next came the mayonnaise, then the mashing. I didn't hurry. Carl's dog needed to run off her panic, and I needed not to envision a wonderful, loving couple arriving for the open house, the husband in dungarees from the office, the wife in beat-up extra tufts because she wanted to wait around the shallows and check out the dock for rot. Across the lawn they went, admiring the amazing lake views, telling Silver that the place was underpriced, actually, and sending their polite, unspoiled toddler to go catch minnows, at which point Carl's dog came charging in, fixated on a dragonfly she believed might be a mallard, knocking over the toddler and grinding him into the gravel beach. I also needed not to think about Carl being sick, Carl not getting better, Carl having left, and how I acted on the steps. He didn't have the money for a kennel, I suspected. Or for cancer. Mashing avocados helped. I mashed away, thinking how RT, a man I yelled at daily for three years just because he wasn't Carl, once said, maybe the reason you shout so much, Dutch, is that you really long to whisper. RT was an orthodontist, a World War II model airplane builder, and an observant man. But all I thought at the time was that if Carl had realized about the shouting instead of RT, he and I might still be together. Luckily, I had moose ribs in the freezer. Labs are not spaniels or pointers. They don't have the upland, 
sense of smell, and Carl's was deep in the alders. I couldn't call her over to my hand and grab her collar. She didn't know my voice, and I didn't know her name, and even if I had a few hours in a kennel, had no doubt left her suspicious of my motives. A rib tossed in the bushes and dragged in front of her nose, however, might kindle some interest. All I needed was something to spice up that rib. My neighbor, Candace Goddard, was at home. I sighted her with the scope I kept in the kitchen. And this was generally how I found her when I needed her. It was 11, two hours before the opening house, and she was still in her nightgown bumping into furniture. By the time I got over there, she was playing acoustic guitar. The guitar was supposed to help her with her anxiety when her husband, Raj, flew off to go sheep hunting and forgot to check in by sat phone every three hours. Stopping to call home while halfway up a shale-covered peak under a sky so blue you'd taste the color in your lungs pretty much ruins the moment. Raj often forgot. Candace was fiddling around the guitar, picking out some prelude number by Johann Sebastian Bach. Like more and more of the younger wives on the lake, she had dealt with turning 40 by investing in injections that left her with a stunned, rubberized expression. Her hair was many, many shades of high-voltage blonde. Her guitar playing, however, told a different story. Listening to her was like listening to butterflies trip over each other's wings. You wanted them to flit around inside you for forever. This is one of the many reasons why we got along and drove to book club together. That day, unfortunately, the anxiety had gotten the upper hand. Her eyes were two dazzles of pupil. When I asked her about a little medication from her supply, she answered me in her floaty voice. Pills, she said, with a kind of delicious enjoyment of the word. What kind? The sleepy kind, I said. Enough for a 70-pound, well, female. She looked out the window, as if the world beyond the glass was just one vast, sparkling diorama. I think it's going to be fine flying through the pass, she said. What do you think? What I thought was that Raj didn't put in enough flight hours, but he had a great touch with short landings. And the odds of him smashing his cub into the side of a mountain were the same as anybody's, a matter of skill, luck, and weather. It wasn't as if her concerns were that far-fetched. Flying in the wilderness, all your everyday ordinary BS, being tired, being lazy, trusting the clouds instead of your instruments, losing your prescription sunglasses, forgetting to check your fuel lines can kill you. And if it doesn't, a door can still blow off the plane and hit the tail, or your kid can run between a brownie and your cub, or your husband can slip on wet frozen shale and fall a few thousand feet down a mountain. Lose the pack and sap phone, break a leg, and that is that. Which is something you've got to live with. Chandeliers or no chandeliers. I made him a checklist, she said, as I rummaged through the bottles at the bottom of her purse. Mixture, prop, master switch, fuel pump, throttle. By the time she got to cow flaps, I had long stopped listening. One of the biggest shames about Candace is that she still has a pilot's license. Her not flying, she said, started with kids, strapping them into their little car seats in the back and realizing there was nothing, nothing beneath them. Sometimes 
I wish I had known her before that idea took hold. Play me a song, Candace, I said. It'll make you feel better. You know what Raj doesn't like, she said. Natives, I said, because he doesn't. He got held up for a quote-unquote travel tax by one random Athabascan on Athabascan land, and now he is one of those cocktail party racists who like to pretend to talk politics just so they can slip in how the natives and the park service taken over the state. He and I nod to each other at homeowners association meetings and leave it at that. Anal sex, said Candace, her voice as light as chickweed pollen. He won't even try it. Look, I said, holding up a pill bottle, how many of these things did you take? I could live without him, she said. I know how to waitress. I could get the kids in me one of those cute little houses off O'Malley. I had some idea of what she was doing only because I had done it myself, which was leaving her husband in her mind in case he did die out in the Brooks Range, which he wasn't going to, so that hopefully she'd fall apart a little less. But the thing about having gotten divorced four times and widowed once is that people forget you also got married each time, you and your soft, secret pink balloon of dreams. The music you're hearing in this episode was sampled from music by Melina Stark and Los Lunas. And now for our final break. You are listening to Storybound with Leigh Newman. And now for our final chapter. If you want anal sex, Candace, I said, just drive yourself down to Las Margaritas, pick some guy on his third tequila and go for it. Just don't lose your house in the divorce like every other woman on this lake. Buy him out. Send him to some reasonably priced brand new shitbox in a subdivision. Keep your property. Beneath her bronzer, Candace looked a little taken back. Gosh, Dutch, she said. I didn't mean to make you upset. I shook a bunch of bottles at her. Which ones are the sleepiest? She pointed to a fat one with a tricky looking cap. Was it Benny, she said? Was it because I brought up crashing in the past? I'm having a bad day, I said, but only because there was no way to explain how I felt about Benny, my first husband, crashing his super cub, or about the search to find the wreckage, that smoking black hole in the trees. Even now, 41 years later, the loneliness, the lostness, not to mention what it had been like being the first and only female homeowner on Diamond Lake. If I had been cute and skinny and agreeable like Candace, it might have been easier. But I was me. The rolled eyes during votes, the snickers when I tried to advocate for trash removal or speed bumps, the hands, the lesbo jokes, the cigars handed to me in tampon wrappers, which I laughed about, seething, but smoked. I got through it all. What hurt the worst were the wives, all of them women I had known for years, who dropped me off their fur Rondi gala list every time I was single and stuck me back on when I wasn't. Benny was a world-class outdoorsman and an old school shotgunner 
who did not believe in pretending that everybody got to make it to old age. On trips he took without me, he always said, Dutch, if I don't come back, hold tight to Hell Palace. Four plus decades later, I still had my property, and it had come at a sizable cost. Wallace put me through a court battle after I left him for Carl. RT needed an all-cash payment to make him run away to Florida. Add to that Lon's rehab and Skip's long-term care. The Cub and the 185 were gone. All the life insurance money, the IRA. Hal Palace was all I had left. And now I had to sell it in order not to die in a state nursing home, sharing a room with some old biddy who liked to flip through scrapbooks and watch the boob tube with the volume cranked up high. You can't cry about these things, but you can't sit around and contemplate them either. Luckily, Candace's youngest boy, Donald, turned up at the top of the stairs. His electronic slab was tucked under his arm. Where's the charger, Mom? He said. Donald, I said. Let's go fish for a dog. Donald has asthma, says Candace. He can't handle a lot of dander. Get your boots on, Don, I said. You too, Candace. Really, she said, I get to come? Do I get to see the wolf room too? For all the obvious reasons, I don't like people on drugs in the wolf room or people with drinks, food, or mental issues. Despite our friendship, Candace had never seen it. If you help me with these safety caps, I said, and fine tune the dosage. Donald was a little wheezy fellow with glasses attached to a sporty wraparound strap that kept them stuck to his face. He knew how to hustle, though, and stuck to my side as I laid out the plan. Your mom's job, I said, is to crush up some medicine and roll the moose rib in it. Your job is to take the spin rod I give you and cast the moose rib into the bushes. Then slowly, slowly reel it in. The minute the dog bites on the rib, you sit tight, play her a little. We'll only have a few seconds for me to grab her by the collar, then we'll stick her in the kennel with the rib. Nighty-night. few feet from the house, I got a feeling. It was a sucker punch feeling. My meal prep left on the deck. I started running. Donald ran too the way kids will without asking questions, as if there might be matches and boxes of free Roman candles at the end of it. Hey guys, said Candace, wait up. In her peaceful freewheeling frame of mind, she had put on Raj's size 12 boots. The last few seconds of the path, I kept telling myself that I would not have taken the meat out and left it by the grill, that I would have not put the dishcloth over it to keep the flies off, that I would have, for some reason, left the meat in the refrigerator, even though everybody knows that meat can't be slapped cold on a hot fire. It needs to mellow out at room temperature. Except that I knew exactly what I had done and why I had done it, believing at the time I didn't own a dog, I also knew what I was going to find, even as I ran through the backyard finding it. Bits of gnawed plastic and butcher paper pinwheeling all over the grass. Here a chunk of hot dog casing, there a lump of caribou burger. Blood juice dripped down the steps. The grill lay on its side on the deck. Propane flames still burning blue. I knelt down and turned off the valve. The birches were in their last tattered days of September green. A leaf whirled down and landed by my foot. It was small, 
the yellow so fresh and bright it belonged on a bird. Dutch, said Donald, I saw her. She ran right by me. Don't chase her, I said. She'll think it's a game. I stayed down there, delaying the cleanup ahead. The leaf had the tiniest edge of dead brown. Footsteps thunked across the deck. Carl's footsteps, Carl's boots. He had not taken off and left me with the dog apocalypse. This was so unlike me, it took me a little longer than it should have to understand. Your animal, I said, ate 60 pounds of meat. Most of it she threw up, he said, by the looks of the grass. I have an open house, Carl. The flies were moving in, a throbbing blanket of vicious, busy bottled green. With the sun out, the smell would be next. I could always run to Costco, pick us up some steaks. Carl said this kindly, but steaks were not what I wanted, and there was no way to explain what I wanted, which was everything the way it was before, years before. Neighbors in the backyard, charcoal smoke, bug dope, a watermelon. People showing up with a casserole, leaving with their laughter and their wet hair after a dip in the hot tub. Whatever my private upheavals, there was always that at least. Thank you to Leigh Newman for reading. She's got a story collection coming out with Scribner this April. It's called Nobody Gets Out Alive, and you can pre-order it now at your favorite local bookseller. Thank you to CDM Sound Studios in New York, and thank you to Epidemic Sound. Our production assistant is Jordan Aaron. Our mixing engineer is Tim Carplus. Editing, sound design, scoring, arranging, and hosting are done by me, Jude Brewer. Our executive producers are myself, Jeff Umbro of the Podglomerate, and Justin Alvarez of LitHub. You can find us on Twitter or on Instagram at StoryBoundPod. You can also write to me directly on Twitter at Jude Brewery. New episodes are released every Tuesday. We'll see you then. Cause I was there by your side With my eyes open wide And I know that will always be true There were no reasons why There's some beauty must die each I harbor, we all so hope, so reckless. So Pod Glomer, a sonic universe.